If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Zen Buddhism is known for its for teaching using short, pithy, puzzling questions and statements called koans. If you were a Zen practitioner, you might be assigned to meditate on one of these sayings. And they're intended to turn your thinking mind on its head and make you look at your experience in a new way. I'm not a Zen practitioner, but if you read the Dharma at all, you become familiar with some of the more famous ones. Everyone knows what is the sound of one hand clapping. And there is one, who were you before you were born? You might meditate on these for quite a long time uh, and consult with your teacher about your experience. Uh, this one is pretty familiar. If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Even if you've heard the saying before, even if it's familiar to you, it's still kind of attention-getting. It sounds radical, but I don't think I'm going to surprise anybody here when I say that it's meant to be metaphorical. It's not about killing anybody. It's about the mental concepts and the stories that we tell ourselves and the way we build up concepts in our mind and become fond of them and become attached to them. The stories you tell yourself about your beliefs can become so vivid and so compelling that that concept becomes heavy and solid and kind of hard to change. The saying has been popping into my head uh, a lot because last month we did the lecture series with Bishop Spong. How many of you came to any of those uh, sessions where we, where we viewed? Bishop Spong's comments on the New Testament are really exciting. They're exhilarating for some people. But there are people who have a lot of resistance to what he says, and they feel that he's killing the idea of the old faith and the old image of Jesus that has come down through the generations of Christian teaching, and that it's possible that he's making the New Testament irrelevant, you know, that, he's that he's changing so much and changing the view of it so much that it's irrelevant. And it's a real problem for some people who have a very Bible-based faith. But this morning, I thought you might be interested to know about some of the textual research that has been done on early Buddhist texts in an attempt to find out more about the historical Buddha, his life, his time, and his teaching. Buddhist teacher and author Stephen Batchelor has taken on this study in two recent books, one is called Confession of a Buddhist Atheist, and the more recent one is called After Buddhism, Rethinking the Dharma for a Secular Age. And for what I'm going to say, I'm drawing pretty much from these two books. Stephen Batchelor bases his books on a study of the Pali Canon. Pali is a language. And the earliest, earliest Buddhist text, texts are in Pali. He also, um, he also references some authors who did this kind of work uh, before he did, although there isn't a whole lot of this going on. 
Anyway, as an interesting aside, I thought I would point out some similarities in the titles between Bishop Spong's book and Stephen Batchelor's, uh, one of Bishop Spong's books. Bishop Spong has a book titled, Reclaiming the Bible for a Non-Religious World, and Stephen Batchelor's most recent book is subtitled, Rethinking the Dharma for a Secular Age. So I'm not suggesting that there's any plagiarism going on, but more that this is kind of a movement this idea of getting back to the historical uh, information about these religious founders. It's, uh, it's a work that's going on in many places. So on to the Buddha, starting with his life story. But first, there hasn't been nearly the amount of work on the Buddha's story as there has been on the Christian story. And there isn't the same level of emotional intensity about it. And that's because the life and nature of Jesus very early became very important in the Christian story. Whether Jesus was divine or not divine became a very central issue and it became an issue that divided people and it became an issue that um, worked through history and created wars and it, it became very important. In the case of the Buddha, uh, Stephen Batchelor says, well, going back, in contrast to the Christian Gospels, where the life of Jesus lies at the heart of the Christian message, Buddhist canonical texts tend to treat Siddhartha Gautama's 80 years of life on earth as though they were largely incidental to what he taught. This is particularly true of his life after the awakening. What happened to him during his remaining years once he resolved his existential struggle and became the Buddha, appears to be of little consequence. So that's a major difference between the Buddhist work and the Christian work. Here's a summary of his life story. A lot of you may be familiar with the life story of the Buddha, but I'll give you a kind of condensed version so we can talk about it. Prince Siddhartha was born as the son and heir of King Sudotana and was raised in the luxury of royal palaces in the kingdom of Sakya. One day, curious to know more about the realm over which he would one day rule, he made an excursion beyond the palace walls and for the first time encountered a sick person, an aging person, a corpse, and a wandering monk. These sights shocked the spoiled young man into an awareness of his own mortality. Unable any longer to lead the idle and sensuous life of a young prince, he fled the palace at night, discarded his luxurious robes and jewels, shaved his head, and became a wandering monk. After six years of strenuous meditation and asceticism, he sat beneath the Bodhi tree and realized awakening and thus became the Buddha, the awakened one. This story actually contradicts what is told about Siddhartha Gautama in the Pali Canon, in these early, early texts. The Buddha's father was not a king, but a leading nobleman of the Gautama clan who would have served as a chairman of the assembly in Sakya, perhaps as a regional headman or governor. Sakya was part of a powerful kingdom called Kosala. This would be in the northern part of India. 
and Kosala was ruled by a king named Pisenidae. Gotama states that his people, the Sakians, are, and quote, vassals of the king of Kosala, and that they offer him humble service and salute him, rise, and do him homage. His father served a king. His father was not himself a king. Now, how can this happen that there is a life story of the Buddha that is in very wide circulation and is told? And not too long ago, a very, very beautiful movie was made with Richard Gere narrating that told this traditional story of the Buddha. Well, how can this happen if there is information in these early texts that contradicts that? If you're used to the New Testament, you're used to a story being told pretty much in time order. We have the birth of Jesus and then tiny little bit about his childhood and going to the temple. And then usually the jump to his public life and moving forward. His teachings are incorporated in the story so that as he goes from place to place, he says things to people and teaches. And then the crucifixion and death and so on. The Pali texts are arranged in an entirely different way uh, because for a very long time they were completely orally transmitted. And we're talking centuries here. The, uh, they talk about 30 years of the Christian texts being transmitted orally. With the Buddhist texts, it's more like 300 years of being transmitted orally. They were organized as teachings, and um, partly it's by length. There's a collection of the short discourses and the middle-length discourses. Um, there's also an entire section of them that collects all the information about how monks are supposed to live. So lots of information about how a monastic community eats and sleeps and lives and travels and various rules for being a monk. And they were organized in that way. The information about the life of the Buddha usually comes at the very beginning and the very end of these texts. So it will say something like, the Buddha traveled to this town and he was to meet up with this famous person from that town and he had a consultation and there may be a little bit of information about their conversation and then it will say and then the Buddha went out into the park into the grove and the Blessed One spoke this and then it's a long section of teaching and then at the very end there might be a little section that says and then when the Buddha was finished he stayed for two weeks and then after that moved on to the next town. So the bits of life story are scattered through this, these collected works. And then remember the emphasis was always on the teaching, on the part under the Blessed One said, said thus. So that's how, this, that's how this has happened. Now where do we get the traditional story of the Buddha? and his early life. Where do we get the story of the prince who is confined in a walled palace until he's 29 years old? The Buddha himself tells this story in one of the teachings, but he's not talking about himself. He is talking about an earlier Buddha named Vipassi, 
who is said to have lived eons and eons back in time. I think he's supposed to have lived 12 Mahakalpas in the past. And a Mahakalpa is the time it takes if a bird, if an eagle has a scarf in its beak and flies over Mount Everest once every hundred years and lets the scarf brush the top of the mountain, a Mahakalpa is the time it takes for the mountain to be worn flat. So Vipassi is said to have lived 12 Mahakalpas before the Buddha was teaching. Um, also, the story of the sheltered prince who goes out and sees the suffering of human beings and leaves a palace and founds a religion is also the, bi the biography of Shenrab Minwache, who is the mythic founder of the Bun religion, which is the indigenous religion of Tibet, and, the, and also it's given as the story of Mahavira, who is the founder of the Jain religion. So I'm thinking of Bishop Spong when he said that the story of Jesus was written by authors who were trying to say something about his teaching and not giving autobiographical facts. The same is true here. The story of the spoiled prince who goes out in the world and is shocked into seeing what life is about is a, is a common story to describe a person who is going through a transformation that leads him to become a seeker of spiritual enlightenment. So if he wasn't actually the pampered son of a king, what was Siddhartha Gautama's life like? The Pali Canon says nothing about the period from his early adolescence until the age of 29. Doesn't that sound familiar? We don't have anything from early adolescence to age 29. Seems to be a familiar motif. <clears throat> but Stephen Batchelor points out some interesting possibilities. Now these are just speculations, but they're speculations based on the history of that time and place. Siddhartha grew up in a town, uh, the name of it is Kapalavatu, and it was on a major trade route. It was on uh, the road called the North Road, and it carried travelers between the kingdom of Magadha, which was to the south of Kosala. All of this is taking place in northern India, so if you kind of have that picture in your mind, it's uh, northern India near Pakistan and Nepal. So it carried travelers between the kingdom of Magadha to the south, and Persian territories to the west. If you took the North Road west, you went into what is now Pakistan, but that at the time was actually a, uh, an area ruled by the Persians. So you had Persian culture not terribly far away. As the son and heir of a leading nobleman, he may well have accompanied his father on trips, official or commercial, to the trading center of Savati, 80 miles to the west. So 80 miles to the west was Savati, and that was where King Pasenadi had his residence. Any advancement for a young nobleman would have come through gaining the attention and patronage of some figure at the royal court. These are possibilities based on what we know about the social mores and the historical background of the time. But what do we find in the Pali texts? In some of the later passages in the sutras, when he is the Buddha, after his enlightenment, he has some conversations with the king, and those are recorded, and it's clear that he can hold his own in these interviews. 
King Pisenity becomes a regular visitor to the monastic community. He becomes a friend, and eventually he becomes a relative of the Buddha through marriage. Pisenity, however, if you're interested, is never really transformed by the teaching. And throughout the Pali Canon, he remains a tyrant, and he is often angry, and he is often cruel. But it seems that Siddhartha interacts with the king like a person who is familiar with life uh, among the wealthy and educated classes of his time. What if instead of leading this very storybook sheltered life, Siddhartha had a wide experience of life? Another interesting speculation that Stephen Batchelor makes concerns the possibility that he studied at university. He notes that there are five figures who move through the story in the Pali Canon, who are contemporaries of the Buddha, who are of the same generation, and who remain close to him through all of their lives. In addition to sharing the friendship of the Buddha, they had something else in common. They were fellow students at the University of Takasila, which was at the time in the Persian territory that was to the west in present-day Pakistan, and, um, and which is known to have been a major center of learning in that part of the world. So, not terribly far away. Takasila was the capital of the Persian territory, and Stephen Batchelor says, was the preeminent center of learning in the region. Young men from the newly emerging cities of North India were sent here to train in the arts of government and war, to become doctors and surgeons, to study religion and philosophy, or to master magic and ritual. It was at the crossroads of trade routes where Persians, Greeks, and other citizens of the empire came together. And Bachelor adds, given his background, Siddhartha Gautama too may have studied at Takasila, and even if he did not, he would have come of age in the company of others who had. So again, this is just speculation, but the university was there, and Siddhartha Gautama was the son of someone who was uh, a person of some importance. One last speculation. Siddhartha marries and has a son in his late 20s, and at this time, marriage as a teenager would have been more common. So he married very late for his culture. And Stephen Batchelor asks, could he have been away at university? Could that have been the reason why the late marriage, that he came home to fulfill his duty to his family and to marry and have an heir? Interesting speculation. That he left home and became a monk shortly after the birth of his son is in the scripture. What motivated him? The Pali Canon says little about this. He says that he decided to leave home in order to seek, quote, deathless supreme security from bondage, rather than to seek satisfaction in mortal and transient things. But this simply states what was a well-known formula for anyone of the time who renounced the world. There are no details about incidents or changes of mind um, about what drove him to leave 
the life uh, of a householder and a person of the more wealthy and privileged class. What uh, made him leave those duties and become uh, a wandering mendicant? Siddhartha recalled later, quote, though my mother and father wished otherwise and wept with tearful faces, I shaved off my hair and beard, put on the yellow robe, and went forth from the home life into homelessness. He would say later, in a home, life is stifled in an atmosphere of dust, but life gone forth is open and wide. Now these two phrases, going into homelessness and going forth, are both phrases that are in, uh, in use at the time, and they mean going into the life of a monk. So it was seen as going into homelessness. After leaving home, he traveled south on the trade route to the kingdom of Magadha, where he studied under two teachers of meditation. And he mastered the techniques that they taught, and this is, this is in the texts. He was dissatisfied and undertook a program of severe austerities, eating almost nothing, sleeping very little, um, and of course, being out of doors, being uh, homeless. Again, he felt that such practice did not lead to liberation. So he didn't feel that the meditation practices he learned were answering his questions about the nature of suffering. And he didn't feel that the austerities, the painful practices, he didn't feel they were leading him to his answer. He then broke his fast and went to present-day Bodhgaya, where he attained enlightenment under the Bodhi tree at the age of 35. This was six years after he had arrived in Magadha. After his enlightenment, the Buddha attracted disciples and became a leader of a spiritual community that included a growing number of monastics, and it included lay people who did not wander with the monastics. They maintained their homes and their position as householders. But the Pali Canon does not depict a serene and perfect teacher moving through an idealized landscape. To become a monastic in those days was going into homelessness. A person left home, renounced the life of a householder, took on the garb of a renunciate, and wandered, seeking alms and food from the lay community. It was a life unprotected in a world full of dangers, bandits, warring kingdoms, and weather cycles that included a rainy season that made travel impossible during certain months of the year. The Buddha led this community, and they were dependent upon the support and protection of wealthy patrons to survive in this uncertain world. At various points in the text, we do hear that wealthy patrons gave the community a place to stay during the rainy season. So this is one of the important uh, functions of uh, the Buddha as the leader of the community, was to find places, as the community got larger, to find places where they could be during the rainy season. And eventually, they, eventually the communities became a little more uh, set in place. But this was uh, not, not always easy. He could not foresee what mood or suspicion might cause a patron to suddenly withdraw support. 
He was unable to predict whether a war might break out or a coup be mounted that would topple a king or whether sickness might strike him or the community. In addition, there were monks who challenged his authority and quibbled over the rules that governed the monastic life. And sometimes groups of monks left to form their own communities with their own rules. And they might or might not return and join back up with the group that was led by the Buddha. Political upheavals were devastating. At one point, the king of Kosala, this was a descendant of Pasenadi, despite negotiations and pleas of the Buddha, slaughtered the entire population of the Buddha's hometown of Kapalavatu, the capital of Sakya, in revenge for an insult that he felt the Sakyans had committed against the king's family. The Pali Canon shows a man who worked hard and skillfully to protect his community in a world filled with violence and uncertainty, while also assuming the role of a social critic and reformer. And that was a difficult balancing act. He was not always successful. He made enemies, and it's possible that his death, which came when he ate a meal of poisoned pork, was caused intentionally. This is not a storybook life. This is a life with real human struggles in a world of daily strife, royal paranoia, and political upheaval. And now, I'd like to leave the biographical perspective and look at Stephen Batchelor's translation of a critical part of the teaching of the Buddha. Sometimes the way a word is translated makes a big difference. In the New Testament, there's a well-known passage about a camel passing through the eye of a needle. It's meant to illustrate how difficult it is for a wealthy man to enter heaven. I've read that the eye of the needle may be understood to be a particularly short and small gate into Jerusalem, which meant that a camel would have to kneel down to get through it. I've also heard that the word translated as camel is the same word as that used as rope. And both, uh, now rope would be hard to pass through the eye of a needle, but I suppose if you're a wealthy man, you might take comfort in the fact that a rope might possibly go through. Both of these alternative translations would kind of change the nuance of the passage. There's another case that's more central to Christianity because of the importance of the doctrine of the virgin birth. Bishop Spong explained in the series of lectures that we listened to last month and in his books that it's common knowledge about uh, uh, among scholars that the word that has been translated as virgin does not convey that in the original text. It simply says, a woman is with child. It was translated that way in an attempt to give Jesus a miraculous birth, like the births of the gods that the Greeks and Roman, Romans had, those deities. And those stories were familiar to the readers that they were anticipating to be their audience. So it made sense for them to alter the story slightly and make it more familiar to people who were going to be reading it. But that translation has made a big difference in the history of Christianity. There's a similar situation regarding a central teaching of Buddhism. It has to do with the translation of a very critical passage. 
And it's a case where those who formulated the English translation were affected by a particular mindset. Stephen Batchelor looked at the polytext of what is called the First Sermon of the Buddha. The First Sermon of the Buddha took place right, uh, well not right after his enlightenment. After the enlightenment, the Buddha took some time to sort of process the, the experience that he had gone through. But when he finally decides to teach, he goes to where his prior companions were. These are the five men who were undergoing those painful austerity practices with him. And when he decided to break his fast and become healthy, uh, they viewed him as having given up, having given up the quest. And they are the first people he goes back to. And they greet him by saying, here's the Buddha. I mean, no, they don't call him the Buddha. They say, here's Siddhartha. He's given up. He's now living a life of luxury. Don't listen to what he says. Um, but the Buddha uh, confronts them and convinces them that he has had this enlightenment. So that's the first sermon of the Buddha. Now, this is the place where the texts introduce the central, the central text of Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths. Um, and they are usually presented in English this way. All life is suffering. There is a cause of suffering. There is an end of suffering. There is an eightfold path that leads to the end of suffering. It's a series of statements, and it sounds almost like a creed. Like, this is what I believe. All life is suffering. There is a cause of suffering. There is an end of suffering. The actual words in the text, the actual Pali words, only mean the four. There's no word there that corresponds to the English word truth, and there's no word that corresponds to noble. These were put in by English translators. In the context of the passage, it also makes sense to translate it, and this is, this is what Stephen Batchelor uh, does in his translation, to translate this as a fourfold task, right? Four things to do. After all, the Buddha is coming back and he's talking to these five men who are using a particular set of practices to try to achieve something. And what he says to them is, these are the wrong practices. The first thing he says to them is that there's two dead ends and that one is to pursue luxury and the other is to pursue pain and that both of those lead to dead ends. So from the, from the very beginning of the passage, he's talking about things you do, tasks, practices. So it makes sense to translate it that way. Um, so as he rejoins his companion, He's coming as one who has figured out what you need to do. He's figured out the practices, and he has completed those practices. The context does not at all suggest a list of beliefs. Anyway, this is how Stephen Batchelor's translation changes the perspective. Instead of all life is suffering, he says the task is to comprehend suffering. Instead of there is a cause for suffering, he says, to let go of the arising of reactivity. Now, reactivity is the automatic 
response that we have to something unpleasant. It is, it is our immediate, uh, unthought reaction that causes us to suffer. So the clenching, the tightening that happens when we are confronted with pain or suffering. Instead of there is an end of suffering, he says the task is to behold the ceasing of reactivity. And the final, there is an eightfold path, he translates as the task is to cultivate an eightfold path grounded in the perspective of mindful awareness. Why do the earlier translations make it sound like a list of beliefs? Those translations were made by Europeans who were accustomed to thinking of religion as a set of beliefs. The idea of spiritual tasks did not seem particularly harmonious to their mindset. Because in the West, religious definition and identity has focused on how one set of beliefs differ from others. So they assumed that the proper way to present this crucial passage was as a list of statements. The format is almost like a short creed. And they decided to translate it as the noble truths, meaning things that have been realized that are true. So um, again, this is, this is really central to Buddhism. So it's kind of huge um, and uh, interesting to think about how it changes the way you might view Buddhism. Another task of those who translate spiritual texts is to find out what is unique for that teacher. And sometimes when you read about people who do the work on the New Testament, they will say they try to find what there is in the teachings of Jesus that run against the tone of the time you know, what runs against the, the current uh, belief system or social behaviors, or what seems to be completely new. So this is, a, this is something that scholars particularly look for. They say that if those sections have been retained in the text, even though they seem to be in opposition to the teaching of the times, they are very likely to be authentic and can be relied upon. For example, uh, Jesus and the woman taken in adultery, the law says that she should be stoned, but Jesus handles the situation in a way that actually circumvents the law. He says those, anyone who's without sin cast the first stone. He actually is running counter to what was the law at the time. So scholars say this probably is an authentic teaching. And in the Good Samaritan story, the Samaritan becomes the kind person who does the right thing. And in the mindset of those times, Samaritans were cast as unworthy and less moral in their actions. So this uh, story and the theme of the story is taken as being very likely authentic teaching. Similarly, Stephen Batchelor has looked for teachings that are in the Pali texts that do not appear to have direct precedence in the Indian tradition. He is developing Buddhism in a time uh, when the Hindu faith was already well set and the Jain religion also existed. So he looks for uh, things that depart from those and from assumptions about the social structure. 
and the culture. For example, the concept of rebirth and the structure of the caste system were part of the spiritual and social background of the time. And in the Pali Canon, Batchelor has been alert to determine which teachings are new or run counter to that. Um, here is his list of what is unique to the teachings of the Buddha and that are not a part of the culture that preceded him. The principle of conditionality. This is the Buddhist principle that everything around us and you and me and everything arises from a process of cause and effect. That everything is preceded by causes that bring it into being and that that coming into being creates additional causes that causes other things to come into being and that it is an ongoing process. This is the, um, often they will say, point out anything that does not have a prior cause. And if you think there is something that has, that has no prior cause, you're probably not a Buddhist. <laughs> Uh, this is something that, that is uh, new in that time because one thing is it sort of uh, obviates the idea of a god, of a god that was already present. So the principle of conditionality, the practice of a fourfold task, to undertake to comprehend suffering by experiencing it rather than escaping into pleasure pursuits or going into painful practices of austerities, to observe one's response to the suffering, to note when the response is not present, and to pursue a plan of life that cultivates this awareness. That is a new concept in that time. The perspective of mindful awareness, that this is a, a, a way of approaching your life moment to moment to be mindfully aware. That is new. And the power of self-reliance. The final words of the Buddha are said to be, be a lamp unto yourselves. Uh, and that is a new concept in that time. So these are new and unique and they and cannot be derived from the worldview of fifth century BCE India. Even though these texts are ancient, they are still being studied from new perspectives by scholars who are asking questions in new ways. And these studies fascinate me, but for some people they raise questions that go to the heart of the Christian and Buddhist traditions. The questions are exciting for some and disturbing for others, which brings us to the idea of killing the Buddha. One of the things that has always drawn me to Buddhism is the way that it assumes that you will become attached to things and that clinging to these things is the source of suffering. Not wanting them or enjoying them because both of those are perfectly okay. It is the clinging, the, the being attached, the having an ego involvement in them. That is the part um, that causes suffering. And the interesting thing is Buddhism itself and enlightenment and the teaching are included in the list of things that you can get attached to. You can get attached to the teaching. You can get an, a, an involvement that is kind of compulsive and sticky. Um, and that is an attachment and that can cause suffering. 
We can get attached to aspects of practice, to opinions about how to practice. We can cling to particular rites and rituals. We can cling to a particular set of teachings as being the best and only interpretation. We can get attached to an impression of the Buddha as an idealized figure who never made a wrong decision or spoke a harsh word. When loyalty to these ideas begins to feel really important, when we get a comforting feeling of certainty about it, we might be seeing the Buddha in the road. There's two ways of looking at this Buddha that confronts us in the road. It can be our impression of our spiritual path or practice that it has become so solidified that it's now an obstacle to further progress. In the saying, the Buddha that one meets on the road, and the road is your path, the path of your spiritual progress, is a concept of the Buddha. If that concept is so solid that we see it, it's that, it's that congealed, we have to, if it's so concrete that it's complete and unchanging, it's become an obstacle. You can't move down the road any further. So we have to kill the Buddha, even if at that moment our concept of the Buddha is very precious and comforting. Once we see it as an obstacle, it has to go. The Buddha that we have created and become attached to at that point is standing in our way. And we need to get back to what the Zen people call beginner's mind. Another interpretation is that we've come to see Buddha nature as being outside of ourselves. Uh, some of the Buddhist teaching really uh, goes into this idea of Buddha nature, that Buddha nature is, is in us and with us, and we can be our own guide and our own teacher. If we begin to see it as something outside of ourselves, that we see in teachers, in other people, and in nature, then it can become an obstacle. A good teacher will tell you that you will never see the Buddha nature within you until you kill that assumption and stop looking outside of yourself and look within. And since I've been comparing things with Bishop Spong, I want to throw in this quote which I ran into from him. Bishop Spong says, the way you become divine is to become wholly human. Now I think there's a lot of commonality there. Does this sound like an exotic experience? I don't think it is. I think that most of us have had an experience like this at some point in our lives. Bishop Spong talks about the faith he was raised in as supporting racism and quoting the Bible to prove it and sub subordinating women and quoting the Bible to support that and seeing gay people as either insane or depraved and quoting the Bible to prove that. At some point, he had to kill the concept of religion that was holding him back in those in those mindsets and preventing him from what he describes as living fully, loving wastefully, and being all that we can be. Many of us here at the UU come from an upbringing in another faith or philosophy, and we may have been very attached to it and to the people and the rituals and the teaching and the community. But at some point, we felt that something there was becoming an obstacle to our development into our fullest sense of who we wanted to be. I think that many of us have killed the Buddha on the road when we figured out that we were clinging compulsively to a system of thought and knew that something had to change. 
At any rate, I love to read about the work of these scholars who are going deeply into important scriptures, whether it's the Christian or the Buddhist tradition. Bishop Spong says that his impression of Jesus is that he was a, quote, boundary breaker. And Stephen Batchelor describes the Buddha as a social critic and reformer who rejected key religious and philosophical ideas of his time. From these descriptions, it sounds like they came to the place where they met the Buddha in the road and they knew what they needed to do. So let's leave it here. And like a group of Zen monks, let's contemplate this koan with some changes. Think of whatever element in your spiritual mindset you might be clinging to. A holy book, a treasury of sayings, a set of laws, a saint, a guru, or other massive figure of religion and philosophy. Now let's put that into the koan. If you meet the in the road, kill him or her or it. Notice if you can feel yourself clinging to a wonderful story. Notice if you feel protective and want your story to be preserved just the way it is. Can you feel a little tightening in the mind? Maybe it's time to refresh the story, open it up, and bring in some new interpretations. But perhaps this all sounds familiar to you. Anyway, we each have to figure out for ourselves if our stories are supporting us or holding us back. If they have become an obstacle, it's time to kill the Buddha in the road.